we live long lives and we need to pace ourselves and understand that that not everything has to be right here right now um so part of my recovery was exactly about that putting a few things off not not trying to do everything i'm a real perfectionist or i was and that was probably my my weakness as you say everything that i did i wanted to do you know i wanted it to be great and it turns out actually good enough is good enough Welcome to How To Be Sad, the podcast about how we can all get happier by learning to be sad better. The paperback edition of How To Be Sad, The Key To Happiness is out now if you'd like to find out more. And in the meantime, join me each week as a very special guest shares their own story of how to be sad well. From the outside, life looked great for Mark Rice Oxley an editor on a national newspaper, The Guardian, with a happy marriage and three children. But in 2009, he suffered a major episode of depression that took him away from his work and left him reliant on medication and professional help for months. He wrote about his experiences in The Beautiful Underneath the Lemon Tree, a memoir of depression and recovery, and says now, life is not a linear chart that goes up. It's a messy scattergraph of moments and experiences, some joyful, others painful. So, Mark, it's a joy to be talking to you today. Great to be here, Helen. How are you? I'm okay, thank you. I am keeping vaguely warm this winter, which is no mean feat. So I I would love to start, for anyone who hasn't read the book, can we go back a little? Can you tell me about your 40th birthday party, please? Yes, I mean, this is going back 10 years, and it's not an evening that I remember with, with any great relish. I mean, I've been feeling... I'd been not feeling myself for a number of months in the run up to that moment. I'd been experiencing sort of vague flutters of panic, anxiety. I didn't know it at the time. I didn't know what these words were to describe what I'd been feeling and and odd headaches, which I never used to get, uh, insomnia um, and a a lack of interest in the things. There's so many things that I love to do and that I'm involved with, but a, a sudden lack of interest in all these things. And it sort of all built up to, you know, literally the night of my 40th birthday when, you know, in a, a sort of extravagant burst of exuberance, we'd rented uh, a little boat to potter up and down the Thames and we'd invited 60 friends on board. And, um, you know, I w- everyone was sort of in fancy dress and I, I was just rigid and unable to sort of talk or eat or speak. Um, and I sort of held my mum's hand for half the evening, um, almost like a, a child on its way to its first day at school. And you know, everything felt bewilderingly different and scary. And I just remember looking at people thinking, I really envy them because they're not me. Oh, wow, goodness, at your birthday. And did you try and sing as well that night, I seem to remember? <laughs> Helen, I try and sing every night. Um, okay, good. It's just <laughs> I look forward to that later. Who I am. Uh, music is a, a, a massive thing. For, amateur music, I should say, is a massive thing for me. And um, yeah, I have my little three, um, a little trio on the boat. Somehow we winch some, you know, um, amplification and my speakers and my guitar on board. And we uh, we played a little set. I played absolutely terribly. My fingers felt like large sausages moving up and down the fretboard I mean I played terribly anyway but that night was particularly bad and uh, actually looking back I have no idea 
how I even did that. I have no idea how I did any of it. It was baffling, bewildering, and, and really frightening. You know, you, you inhabit your life, you think you know what it is, and suddenly it turns out that it's going to be something really different. And what were your preconceptions about mental illness before this point? Oh, a very poor uh, understanding, really. Um, and I think probably we have to remember this is 2009. So we're going back to almost a different era before all of this kind of more recent understanding and knowledge about mental ill health has, has come through in the press and in, in a lot of really great books as well. So for me, it was depression was like, oh, that's for other people, right? That's for, for people from broken homes or broken countries or people with terrible childhoods, you know, not... I'm a privileged, I've always done well, I've got, as you said in your intro, wife, a family, a great job, I've got a good set of friends, you know, it was the last thing that I, on my mind, but actually, it was the, literally the only thing on my mind, as it turned out. And I wonder how that conversation went at work, as you say, things have changed a lot, but... I certainly remember last time I was in a newsroom or last time I was in a, you know, a media publication arena. It's a, it's a very specific work culture that isn't perhaps used to taking into account how other people's brains might be working. I think you're absolutely right in general. Uh, and, and certainly, you know, again, if we think about eras in the period up to around the 2010, 11, when I think things started to change. But I was very lucky. I worked for an employer who understood, um, and not just, you know, in the box, box ticking sense, but really understood that, that feeling well is a very important part of, of working well. So uh, my employer looked after me. It was one of the reasons, actually, that I was able to, to stage, you know, a really robust recovery was that they took all the pressure off me and said, look, you know, we understand this happens. We know what it is. You know what it is. It takes a while to fix it, to so go away and fix it and come back when you think you're, you know, three parts fixed and we'll try again. That's incredibly progressive. H had you feared that it might not be quite so warm? I think there's two answers to that question. The, the sort of rational part of it is that, yeah, of course, you think that newsrooms are rough and tumble places and that you know you won't or at least they won't have place for you and you read i read other other stories from other publications which i won't name because i know that they're legally fraught but you know cases that have gone all the way to the high court you know lawsuits in which journalists have taken publishers to court for, for dismissing them, basically, after they suffered from a mental health episode. So that's the first answer. The second answer is that when you're having a mental health episode, of course, you don't think rationally at all. So when I was in the middle of it every day, I'd think a thousand times I would think I'm finished. And how what did those days look like at that point? Oh, my goodness me. Uh, I mean, I, I sort of spent a year trying to sum it up when I wrote the book and it's, you know, devoid of colour and it's, I mean, I lost two stone. I'm not, a, I'm not a big man and I lost two stone and I couldn't eat and I couldn't drink, you know, coffee without sort of wigging out almost totally. I was very, very lonely, actually. I think this is one of the things that the people who suffer from depression have in common. It's that really you kind of got to do it on your own. And yet loneliness is the worst thing because depression loves feeding on loneliness. 
So I remember doing long walks just to try and find something to do. You know, I couldn't read, I couldn't concentrate, I couldn't watch television, couldn't do all of those things that I loved doing. So it was jigsaw puzzles, it was meditation, it was walking, and it was trying to sort of quell a, a, a mind that had sort of gone off on one. It was trying to sort of bring it back and just settle things down. It took months and months. And then, you know, whenever I speak to lots of people, you know, just in a kind of, you know, friend, as a friendly, what's the word? Not a therapist, but just as someone that's with the lived experience. And I do say, look, when this happens, it, it does take months and months to, to recover from. And actually, you're probably never, ever really totally recovered. You just have to still learn to live with it. Yeah, that, the loneliness that you described, just, I can, you know, I can feel it's like someone sort of tearing your heart. It's so, it's so painful, that part. And doesn't matter how many people are telling you that they love you. Mm. It, it doesn't help, does it? Well, you can't really support or sustain too much social interaction. I mean, this is my thing, right? Other people will will end up with clinical depression for, for their own reasons. Um, you know, my reasons was a, was a real stress burnout. So anything that was a stressor, whether it was excitement or, you know, more common forms of stress like, you know, anxiety or worry, you know, was in, insupportable for my kind of broken brain. So I could literally could, I, you know, it was nice to see someone for half an hour. But after that, you'd have to let them go because you know that it was starting to overload the system. It was such a kind of extraordinary thing. I felt I was the only person on the planet to have suffered from this. But when I found out that, you know, hundreds of millions of people suffer in their own way, it felt like so incongruous that here I was with the loneliest illness on the planet. And yet there's hundreds of millions of other people out there with it. And when you when you are meeting with people, for example, and you're feeling after half an hour, this is this is I need to stop now. What what how does that manifest those those feelings? What comes over you? Well, for me, a kind of it's a rising, a sort of quickening in the chest, the sort of pulsing at the temples, a, a sort of glassiness in vision. I mean, this is this is going back, Helen. Yeah. This isn't me now, thankfully, because now I've learned how to sort of cope with this and keep it at bay. So I I, I managed to avoid too many repeat performances. But yes, the sort of just at a general. You get the sense that, you know, like with a, if an engine is out of oil, completely out of oil, then its moving parts are going to grind horribly against each other. And it's only when you kind of steadily replace the oil that they, it can start to smoothly function again. It really felt, you know, all my moving parts were really grinding against each other and some of my non-moving parts as well. And that was just unbearable. So you'd have to break away to say to someone, yeah, it's really nice to see you, but can you leave immediately? And uh, and people were sort of a little startled by that, I think. Yes, I bet. And you've spoken as well before about finding the noise and and the change and the and the change in identity of parenting difficult. I wonder how how that felt during that period. Goodness me, it was so painful because you know, I always wanted to be a parent. I've loved being a parent, and I've taken fatherhood you know like I've taken everything very seriously and, and really you know committed I went all in you know I, when my first child was born I took a year off work so I could be the primary carer and I've always pretty much been that ever since although of course I went back to work uh, that's a bit unfair to my wife we've really <laughs> shared things out you know we've really kind of split things 50 50 and that's a, as any any mum or dad listening to this will know that's a lot of work, but but hugely rewarding. And so to suddenly be in a position where I couldn't be bear to be in the same room as them because they're 
their screeches and their nonsense and their 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 absurdities and their demands well i couldn't i couldn't respond to any of it and that felt you know really kind of um dispiriting to put it mildly yeah that was really painful the only thing that really got me through it was the sense that this isn't forever i need to get better and when i'm better i'll be a, a good parent again that's amazing that you were able to think so lucidly um and and almost sort of compassionately to yourself at that point. Well, I think self-compassion is a massive part of this, uh, of recovery. When people end up down in this sort of, you know, this sort of shadowy valley, it's really important that they are good and kind to themselves, that they figure out how they got down there and figure out the, the way back. But the way back will involve, you know, stopping judging ourselves, stop comparing ourselves to other people and being kind to ourselves we are who we are you know and we're probably deep down most of us pretty good people so someone once said to me and I can't remember if it was a friend or a therapist but you know you sort of need to look at yourself as your best friend would look at you you know would your best friend be as harsh and judgmental of you as you are uh, to yourself and um, it turned out I was quite a hard taskmaster for myself and one of the things I had to learn to get out of that valley was to just go a bit easier. Yes and so thinking of how you got down there you have also written about how you set yourself extremely high standards in in parenting as you just mentioned and also in terms of of your career and it's a high octane place a newsroom. How, How did you turn that juggernaut around? Well um yes you've really hit the nail on the head I mean I was working you know, long hours in a national newsroom. Um, I was also still freelancing because I've always free, I've always liked writing for other publications. I was still freelancing a bit. And we had three children under the age of five and my <laughs> wife started a business. You know, I think anybody listening to this will think, yeah, mate, you were really, <laughs> you, were, you were cruising for it. You were heading for some kind of breakdown. That's an awful lot to take on in such a short period of time. Um, and looking back, I just think, yeah, that was foolish. Yeah, we, we live long lives and we need to pace ourselves and understand that, that not everything has to be right here, right now. Um, so part of my recovery was exactly about that, putting a few things off, not, not trying to do everything. I'm a real perfectionist, or I was, and that was probably my, my weakness, as you say. Everything that I did, I wanted to do, you know, I wanted it to be great. And it turns out actually good enough is good enough. Um, so that was another bit of, of recovery. 60% of the effort gets 90% of the results. So, you know, that's a, a creed that I, I live by. And I really hope my boss isn't listening to this. <laughs> if he is, it's, I, I'm, I'm putting in 90% of the effort most of the time. You just have to pace yourself, I think. It's a long life and you're not in control of everything. So work hard where you can. And then, you know, I like the expression, if at first you don't succeed, try again. And then give up. There's no point being a damn fool about it. I think that's um, can't remember an American comedian who said that. That's a great line. um, That 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 was Helen. That was the big change in me. Up until 2009, I was a kind of all in, you know, 20 hours a day kind of sleep was for wimps Mm. kind of person. Now I'm trying to be trying to get back to being the sort of idle, lazy dreamer that I was as a small boy. It's so interesting because I think without wishing to instrumentalise children, I have found that they do force you 
to slow down in some respects because there's just so much to do. We we met at an event when my I have four year old twins when they were much smaller and and I, you now it makes sense with three under the age of five you you knew that that pressure and I think you sort of gently said are you okay <laughs> is this is this all holding together because. Yes, there, there isn't a sort of bit of the parenting book that says, by the way, just take it easy for a while. Well, there should be, though, shouldn't there? I, mean, I think that I don't like to blame anyone other than myself for what happened to me. But there are, you know, we live in a society, there are certain things about society that I think are are wrong and, and are dangerous. And, and one of them is that when we have small children, babies, mum and dad are like, encouraged urge to like you know get back to full output at career you know as soon as possible there was a case of the french government minister who was back at her desk within six days of having a child i mean any other generation in the hundreds of thousands of years of our species would look at that and think it's absolutely bonkers we, we're going to live to we're 100 most of us going to work till we're 75 why do we feel the need to get back into work and sort of start putting it out on maximum output when we've got tiny infants that are already a full-time job yes yeah and i i know that you have some some very strong and persuasive thoughts about school and the impact this has on our approach to life and interestingly i spoke to the journalist matt rudd from the times who who shares this notion that the pressure to succeed begins in school uh, you have this great line show me a winner and I'll show you someone on the verge of cracking up so tell me <laughs> tell me what you think children are being taught now and what should we be teaching our kids to help them be more psychologically flexible the whole notion of school has always been about preparing young people for adulthood you know and in the 19th century that meant reading writing and arithmetic and as we got into the 20th century we added in some but some more practical things, you know, economics became a subject and, and home economics became the subject and, and, and design technology and things like that. And, and, and yet now I think that we're still only doing like 60% of what we should be doing with kids. It's starting to, you're starting to see more of this kind of, uh, of this kind of psychological preparation happening in some schools, you know, they have... In the UK, what is it, PHSE, you know, when they talk about, you know, more about feelings and more about soft skills and things like that. But I think we have to we have to teach kids that it's not all about getting, you know, A stars. It's not all about sort of life isn't a set of hurdles and you clear one set of one set and then there's the next one and there's the next one. As long as you keep jumping over hurdles, you'll be happy and successful. It's it's much more complicated than that. And, and it does go back to schools. And I think that really sticking one lesson in the middle of the week where, where the kids laugh and fidget at the back because it's all about feelings isn't quite working. It needs to be much more, you know, a, a much more sort of considered rearrangement of the curriculum so that we're not just giving them, who, who knows, in 10 years, 15 years, maybe facts and knowledge won't be that much use to kids because they'll have everything at the top of a finger on a, on a device but what will be useful is is can you last and do you and do you understand what unhappiness is do you understand what happiness is do you understand what contentment is what society is what uh, mental health is mental well-being and I think we absolutely that's as important as maths as far as I'm concerned I agree yeah Thomas Dixon from Queen Mary University is doing some great stuff around teaching emotions in schools and I think the 
Skyrim in Denmark, but the, the Norwegian approach about risky play and the importance of that and it leading to a greater psychological resilience is so compelling. It just feels mm. mad that we're not doing more of that in the UK. Mm. I mean, the word the word resilience is people are using it more and more. And I, I'm, I don't know what I feel about it. I, I used to like it. Mm. Um, I used to think it's great if we could all be resilient. But then when you sort of have that moment of not feeling so resilient, which we all have, then do you sort of feel a bit of a failure? And, and so I like flexibility more, psychological flexibility. You know, just the, the, the tools to understand that, you know, sometimes you just have to accept. Um, sometimes you just, you know, not everything is going to go your way. You're not going to win every battle. Um, you're not going to have a great day every day. Um, so it's about acceptance and about expectations, particularly about expectations, which I could talk about for hours and hours, but you know, you're not going to want this on your podcast. You know, we, we've got to settle for sometimes for the second best or for, you know, a quiet day or for a peaceful passage in our life when actually, yeah, we don't set the world on fire, but we do okay. Yeah, I think that's where, and I appreciate your point about resilience. I guess I'm thinking of it in terms of being able to fail and then try something else again. And I think I know right. that you're a fan of, of taking up something you're bad at. And, and I'm a, yeah, a big advocate of the idea of hobbies, of, of a safe space to just be a Wally. Yeah, it was funny. So um, when I was um, doing psychotherapy, my guy, who was a great, really a great guy, he said, you know, I want you to like, go out and do some things that, you know, where you really fail. And just sort of feel what that feels like. He tried to get me to um, to go into my GP and do some press-ups in the <laughs> middle of the waiting room and then just sort of soak up the, the kind of uncomfortable horror of the people all sitting around and just walk out. Um, I couldn't bring myself to do that. But I did go into a hardware shop and ask for an ice cream. Oh. I had to ask for it twice because the guy behind the counter was so perplexed. Um, and then walked out. And yeah, you know what? Nothing really bad happened. I've been back in that shop and bought stuff. He doesn't remember me. So, you know, you can, I mean, that's that's failure on a very, very small level, right? I mean, that's just, that's a little bit of a psychological game. But for someone like me, who was such a perfectionist, it was instructive in that it showed you, yeah, we're human, right? You can, you can cock up and walk on and there's no shame um, and, and carry on. Uh, and then so the other thing, more, the more considered thing he got me to do was to try and, yeah, take up some things that I wasn't going to be very good at, not the best at. And one of them was gardening. Of course, I'm still me. So my God, looking pretty good today. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yes, yeah, plants die, you pull them up, chuck them out, stick another one in. It doesn't matter. My wife and I did a bit of dancing and I promise you, we were pretty bad at that. <laughs> yeah, stop trying to outperform and, and and win gold medals in every hour of every day you know it, life isn't like that it's a much more rich curious mysterious place and you should treat it attach attack it with curiosity and not with ambition yes absolutely and you talk about your wife doing the dancing with you do you observe a difference in the way that you both approach failure and and the struggles in life I guess in terms of men and mental health men famously avoid going to the doctor, often don't want to face up to these feelings of vulnerability or failure. Can you talk to me about your your views about how, how gendered this might be at this stage? 
That's a really good question because I don't think we're typical. I mean, I'll talk briefly about us. My wife's also pretty perfectionist type of person. She's a very high achiever and she's done certainly done more in her with her career than I have with mine. And that in a sense it makes for a kind of atmosphere that's I mean, we we get on fantastically, we've known each other for a long time. But occasionally we're sort of like two alphas, you know, going head to head on these things, which isn't really that healthy for me. Certainly that was how it used to feel. I think we're probably a bit more mellow and mature now. I mean, from what I understand in, in in more general society, this thing is really gendered in that I was talking with a a male friend the other day who's also been through similar things we were talking about the notion of sort of shame and pride and how there's such masculine nouns really that shame is such a huge thing for guys but it doesn't seem to really feature too much in in the female lexicon and it's at the root of so much mental ill health for men who are trying to be these kind of perfect beings who never fail because to fail would be shameful and shame is emasculating and so I think it is gendered in in that regard that men sort of plow on and soldier on and and women admit to their frailties and and, um, moments of doubt and anxiety and, and go and seek help uh, and but I mean, I'm talking really as if this is 2012. Um, I think there's been a, there's a lot has happened in the last 10 years. And the hope has to be that, you know, men are kind of pulling out of that sort of crisis of masculinity and are hopefully, hopefully finding a, a new way to be. Uh, yeah. And in terms of reasons for optimism, what have you observed from the workplace and, and from the work that you do at The Guardian in terms of how attitudes are shifting? Well, I am an optimist. Um, I do think the past 10 years has been fantastic for for getting this thing out into the open and, and talking about it. And I'm sure it's that saved lives. And I'm sure that's made people's recovery easier. The fact that they know that they can open up without being ridiculed or shamed or sentenced into bedlam. So that is, that's a good thing. And, and, and we have to you know, continue along that path. I'm worried about society's ability, in particular in the UK, the NHS, but not just the NHS in the UK. You know, every democracy, every country that I've investigated as part of my interest in this subject has is finding it impossible to square the circle of, of mental illness, to fund it, to cover it, to make sure that everybody is taken care and looked after. So that will continue to be a, a smouldering crisis that will flare up from time to time. So I'm less optimistic on that front. On the on the workplace front, I think it's it's a little bit. There is I have two kind of conflicting thoughts. On the one hand, I think obviously now most employers understand that a you have a, a legal duty to look after your staff, and b if you if you get someone back to full health, like the, the Guardian did to me, then then you can get that. I think I've done my best work for The Guardian in the 10 years since I've been well. So that's a real kind of encouragement for the corporate sector to take this seriously and to do the right thing. And yet, if you're a small business and someone is out for six months, you know, that can be shattering to your to your whole kind of business plan. So it's very difficult in that situation, both for the employee who knows that it's not necessarily the right thing here to be totally open and honest about his or her mental health and really hard for the employer when 
you know, they lose sort of 20% of the workforce um, just like that. So it's, you know, to be to be continued, I think. It feels as though flexible working, it's been such a, a test case over the last couple of years. And there's now so much evidence that it's hugely positive for, for all included, including for the bottom line that it will add. I think it was something like 50 billion to UK business. But there's still a sniffiness about, about mental illness, as you say, and about, you know, leaving early to pick up children. Has there been, do you think, an upside to working from home during the pandemic in terms of, um, I'm thinking about masculinity again and, and men of, of fathers being able to spend more time with their families and just shifting their idea about what that role might be? Yeah, I think there's been upsides and downsides. I think, as you say, it's been brilliant for a certain group of people, perhaps, you know, family, parents, mothers, fathers, who've you know, being able to get perhaps a better work-life balance, you know, taking the commute out of the week. I mean, that's amazing, isn't it? And for, for me, for, for September, October, November, I was working in the office two days a week and working from home the rest of the time. That was brilliant balance, actually. That was, I could see that really working for millions and millions of, of, not, of people, not just parents. But on the other hand, I also know of, you know, colleagues, younger colleagues normally whose home situation is just not fit for purpose as a workspace at all and they've been soldiering on for almost two years now you know working on their beds or in a mate's garage or whatever so you know we're at the beginning of that journey I think it's good that we're going down that route I've felt for a long time that there's a lot of waste a lot of unnecessary travel that happens just so people can do their jobs but it needs to be sort of formalised and figured out so that everybody's a winner here. I think everyone can be a winner. And I think hopefully 2022 will be the year that we really get to grips with that and figure out, you know, is it one rule for one, one rule for another? Do we have a flexible, really flexible pattern? So if you want to work the office five days a week, you absolutely can. But if you only want to come in, you know, two days, you can do that as well. I think we can get there. I really do. And you mentioned being in the office two days a week. You wrote about the benefits of the four-day week some years back. Is that something that you're still doing? Oh, yes. I love the four-day week. I think people don't realise that the 5-2 split is quite a recent thing. It's sort of less than 100 years old, you know, the Saturday-Sunday weekend. Actually, before that, it was sort of more six and one. A lot of people worked six days and had Sunday off. Um, and we got a bit more prosperous and 5-2 became the norm for office workers but why I mean nothing in nature is in the balance of five to two I feel when I work a four-day week that I'm just as productive of course it won't work for everybody and what I'm talking about here is not a four-day week paid 80 percent it's that the working week is four days and you get your full pay Um, and then you have three days for your family for your hobbies for your dreams um, or just to sort of lie around the house and have a bit of a scratch if that's the kind of person you are and again, I think it's a little bit too radical for government. Some quite a few companies have have instituted this. And of course, they all report that it works really, really well. But then they would, wouldn't they? Yeah, I'm, I'm a massive fan. Some colleagues have, have done it as well. The Guardian's very flexible about it. Not all companies could be that flexible, perhaps. It wouldn't work for everybody. But, you know, this is a big so- social... We're in the middle of these huge social shifts. And... I think one of the outcomes of the pandemic could be you only get one life. So don't spend it all at work. Absolutely. And I wonder, you've you've worked in, in Russia, in 
France and Eastern Europe and, and looking at what people are doing globally. What's your impression of the cultural differences in terms of mental health attitudes and even to emotions? I, I've been really interested in, in my research looking at the different uh, approach to sadness in Russia, where being sad is kind of considered OK and smiling less so. So, yeah, what's mm. your take home there? Well, I think we should, first of all, I make a, a, a distinction between you know, sadness and feeling sad and then mental ill health, because I do think the two things are different. Uh, and I think I love the title of your book, How to Be Sad. I think everyone needs to know it because it's an absolutely essential, natural part of everyday life. So the Russians are very, really in tune with their sadness, really in tune with the melancholia of life. In fact, almost a bit too much. They're very fatalistic in some senses, you know, in a lot of lot of Russian expressions for like, oh, so be it, or, you know, there we go again, or, you know, sort of, oh, that's just God's work or whatever. And I think that's probably a little bit too fatalistic for me. But yes, they're definitely much more in touch with their, um, with their, with their melancholic side. I've, I wouldn't say that's the same. I lived in France for a while. It's a very different place. I wouldn't say it's the same there. But Eastern Europe, it definitely has that kind of, that sort of, um, they even have words for it. The Czechs have this word, litost, you know, which is a kind of, I can't really translate it. It's sort of, you know, a, a kind of sadness and a missing of a home and of what once was. And, and the Russians have a couple of similar words as well. And we don't have those words. And maybe that means they're better at being sad than we are. It does seem that there must be necessarily less stigma around feeling low and, and again very clear to differentiate between depression and chronic mental illness that, that requires help usually and sadness which is this normal feeling when things aren't going our way and, and loss and disappointment but it does seem looking at studies showing that for example Americans are outliers in their desire to avoid sadness and this emphasis on good vibes only and, and happiness at, at all times then it makes being honest about not feeling great more difficult it, it must mm. do in some respect well america is a country and a society founded on optimism yes. isn't it it's always had that kind of adventurous spirit and, and optimism and hope has sort of shot through america you know certainly through the 19th century and, and very much the kind of you know ronald reagan uh, you think about his his presence and even barack obama like yes we can it accentuates the fact that um, with a can-do society, that's why America is economically has been such a success, and not just economically, actually. But yeah, it's it's probably not that easy to be a sad American. You know, there's, there's such a well, there's huge wellness industry, and very Californian, obviously, and everybody's constantly being told all the time about the ways to try and make yourself feel even less sad. And I think that's probably barking up the wrong tree. I I just think that. We must remember that we're animals, that things go in cycles, that we'll have periods of sadness. And the joy is that those periods will certainly end. And doesn't it feel great when the good times comes in, when the sun comes out and you can sort of really appreciate it for what it is because it's come after, after a dark and difficult spell? Do you think you could have had that perspective without, without age? Do you know what? I think I've always had... I've always had a sense of it, even without my mental illness, my epi my depressive episode. I think I was always someone who was a bit up and down. And I think even in my in my twenties, certainly, I think I went through spells when I thought, you know, 
huh, things aren't working out. Um, I'm trudging a bit. Everything's a bit. And then suddenly, wow, things are working out. Things are, and I sort of, I think I did instinctively get the sense of that life has its ups and downs. But I certainly think that with age, you, you look back, you've got much more data to work on, right? You can, I can look back over 50 years and see trends and tendencies really quite clearly and, and form my own conclusions, which may or may not be, be right. There speaks a journalist. <laughs> yeah. So um, yeah, I think you're right. Age, age helps in that sense. There's a lot of senses in which age doesn't help. Oh, yes. Like what? <laughs> well, getting up in the morning. Oh, Mark. <laughs> sort of like um, going for a five mile run. Yeah, age is not, not your friend <laughs> when you're doing stuff like that. And also when you're sort of having banter with your teenagers and they're listing all the ways in which you've become kind of decrepit and irrelevant. <laughs> and it's, uh, then you realise that, yeah, the thing about age is you don't just get old. You, you, you get older and older and older. It goes on and on and on. Oh. Um, so um yeah i'm sorry about that Helen. you've got it all to look forward to. <laughs> when the teenage years hit okay and you've talked a lot about prevention rather than cure but since i think five percent of mental health research funding is currently spent on investigating prevention that's not easy and in all the ways that we've we've changed our approach to fitness and diet and medicine you know that, that you and I might go for runs even though we are not professional athletes the idea that jogging is a thing people might do in their in their free time things that improve our physical health there's been far less emphasis on keeping us mentally well I read a piece where you quoted the Harvard professor Ron Kessler who said in psychiatry and psychology it's like we're practicing 1950s cardiology where you wait for a heart attack and once it happens you know what to do that we need to go right. upstream I love that so what what can we be doing do you think well I think there's things that are already happening I mean I'm not a big fan of the app as a grand solution to <laughs> our mental health problems but I think there are you know apps that help you to be more meditative. Um, I don't know if I necessarily want to name some because, uh, you know, you, you name one and then another one gets crossed that you're, you know, sort of supporting a different product. But we have become more attuned to the idea that sitting quietly for 10, 15 minutes a day can change the, the, the way that your brain functions. It can change your, because our, our brains are plastic, they do evolve. You can change structure and make yourself more psychologically uh, resilient, to use your word. So there, there is some of that stuff. And I do, I mean, it is absurd that people will go to the gym for an hour a day and, and become physically buff and yet have no idea what to do to look after the most important organ of all. Or maybe it's the second most important, because if you haven't got a heart, then you're really, you know, <laughs> you, you, you know you're really stuck, aren't you? But, you know, our brain is everything. It's so complex. It needs nurture. It needs exercise you know it needs mental you know a bit of mental gymnastics i think it needs calm periods it needs to sleep it needs rest and i think that these are things that are being talked about more and more um, in the public space the only problem is that i don't necessarily love everything i read in the media about you know neuroscience because it's a complicated business and you get some quite gross simplifications out there but it's good that we're we're talking about it yeah i would urge everybody to get to understand you know what meditation can do what you know a walk a good a good gentle walk once a day can can do we've written all this stuff we kind of know it's true but still we still don't go and do it i think what i found fascinating in, in research for this book was that even the best 
brains from neuroscience and psychology and psychiatry all admitted we just don't know that much about the brain. And you think, goodness, if the best minds in the world still struggle with this, then of course it's going to be challenging. The idea of you know antidepressants or not antidepressants and, mm. and talking therapies, but actually there isn't enough there aren't enough therapists to to facilitate that. I think um, it's, it's always a miracle that more people don't struggle when you look at the risk factors that may lead to mental struggles like genetics, uh, lack of stimulation in childhood, social adversity, social isolation. I mean, pretty much everybody could probably tick one of those boxes. In a sense, there's something a little bit exciting about <laughs> the fact about the fact that we are in really neuroscience is still in its infancy. You know, imagine what we'll be able to do for people when in 20 years or 30 years, we understand the brain, you know, a thousand percent better than we do today. Because you're right, some of the the therapeutic interventions, whether it's medicine or whether it's talking therapies, are are hit and miss, unproven, do work. Some people, but not for everyone. And and where they do work, no one really knows why. So I think it's for the species, it's exciting. For individual sufferers, it still remains the case that, you know, if you're suffering with mental illness today, you know, it's probably, you know, just 20 years too early for you to, for it to be something that you go down with and then suddenly there's a, a ready-made off-the-shelf solution for you that gets you back on your feet in three or four days. We just have to kind of take it slower and build our recovery uh, over a longer period but it does happen one of the most reassuring things that that i was told in the early days of mine is the vast majority of people who have a mental health episode do recover and you have to hold on to that that's wonderful to be told that but it's that the unknowing and it's the not knowing i know the the statistics showing that you know the average episode is around six months i believe but it's the not knowing exactly when this will happen the, the gray areas, the nuance that none of us are very good with these days, I guess, because we can have some certainty about many areas of our life, or at least we think we can. Do you think we've become less accepting of, of uncertainty? That's a really good question. I'd have to say yes. It's probably a function of, you know, how, how long this has been going on, how deeply you've fallen and, and all other kinds of of genetic um, factors but you know we have to I, I point people to the work of Oliver Berkman I don't know if you've had him on your show he'd be he's a fascinating guy to talk to he's got his new book is excellent yes 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 he's he's a wonderful writer and a great sort of um, raconteur as well and yeah he wrote a column for a while I think in which he explored the whole nation of un- notion of uncertainty it's one of the great greatest things about being alive isn't it I mean there there aren't that many certainties. That's sort of the game. It's the rules. You kind of have to play by the rules. And that goes back to what I was saying earlier about acceptance. You know, you have to accept sometimes that things will be a bit uncertain, that, you know, you have to roll with the punches and uh, make it up as you go along. But there's something quite glorious about this. Well, if everything was certain, what a dull place this would be. I like that approach. I, I struggle to take it on, but I appreciate its value. And Mo Gaudat is was also very keen on the idea of seeing life as a game, which does feel liberating. I want to talk about writing your book, and I wonder whether there is something writing it all down that that does feel like a type of control. I wonder how helpful that was. Was it cathartic? And I'd love this to know about the significance of the title. Can you tell us about that, please? Well, Helen, you're, saying, you're starting to sort of... Um 
analyze me, you know, or at least um, sort of therapize me from, <laughs> from a distance. Because, yeah, I've, I've always been someone who's found a certain control, a certain catharsis in writing stuff down. So I wrote a, a diary from, you know, when I was 11 every single day. And it became a really important way just to kind of put the world to bed at the end of the end of each day. And actually, it slackened off, I have to say, into, into adult life. I, I, I still wrote, but most of my writing is on, in blogs and actually up on the on, on the web. So I, I felt less of a need to go home every night and put the world to rights then. But but when I was ill, I did write a lot. And when we just decided with um with Little Brown to do the book, you know, those notes were very useful. And then also doing a bit of, of research and investigation and talking to people who know about this, both from the lived experience point of view and also from the clinical and professional point of view, just fascinating, such a fascinating subject that, yeah, I got really into it and I kind of ordered my thoughts and I started at the beginning and finished at the end. It felt a bit of a cheat to call it, you know, a book that I'd written because it sort of wrote itself um, sort of tumbled out of me onto a nearby computer and uh, I didn't really have much of a hand in it or so it felt so yeah and then we were sort of knocking around a title I wanted to call the book is that all there is which is the name of one of the chapters it's also a, a, a wonderfully if you don't know it it's a song by Peggy Lee from the 50s Ooh. and it's it's kind of a sort of got a lilting umpa kind of undertone and lyrics that you just can't don't quite know is she really really happy or really sad or is she just sort of both at the same time also the title itself has got that kind of existential scream at the heart of it is that all there is um is that all there is if that's all there is my friends then let's have dancing you know it's um it's a wonderful song but they uh, i think they found that somebody else had written a book called is that all there is um so then we knocked it about a bit and actually one of the light motifs of I'm saying such a such a kind of like a Germanic sort of 19th century imbecile here. But, you know, one of the kind of current running themes through the whole thing was this lemon tree that my mum bought me on my 40th birthday. And, you know, I wasn't really very good at, at trees or plants and I'm still not brilliant at them. But it was there it was and I it was in the garden and it was clearly not going to survive a northern hemisphere winter and I didn't know if I would either so I brought it in the house to um sort of look after it and sit by it and play patience and drink tea and just sort of sit there in my sort of very kind of dismal stupor and you know in the end actually both of us made it through and I'm really glad that it was the lemon tree that bought it not me Oh, the lemon tree took one for the, for the team. Yeah, it took one for the team, yeah. The lemons, <laughs> the lemons. I mean, they ended up two lemons, and they were green, and then there's one absolutely spectacular eruption of, um, of buds and scent, which is amazing, and then everything just fell off and, uh, and landed sort of underneath the lemon tree where I was. Um, so we went with that. And the other thing that's good about that is it's a nice, cheery picture you could put on the front. It's beautiful. Yeah, it's a beautiful picture. And finally, and we've talked a little about what helps you now and, and hobbies. And, and I would love to know, knowing what you know now, I wonder what advice would you give to your 21-year-old self about how to be sad well? I would certainly say to him something that you've picked up on in this conversation, which is prevention is better than the cure. Get yourself a counsellor straight away. You know, you might feel like an invincible 
alpha 21 year old who's going to conquer the planet but actually even at 21 i'd have moments of sadness and moments of light depression which i couldn't explain so get a counselor get somebody who's not your girlfriend or your family that you can talk to once a month even and just explore some of these really the real complications of what it is to be an adult in the 21st century you know what the role of work the importance of achievement what what success is should be can be and explore those things and and realize that you know it's not all about you and it's not all about winning and it's not all about being great it's just about being good enough actually that's what i tell him whether he'd listen to me i really don't know but wonderful advice nonetheless and what a place to end thank you so much mark a pleasure to speak to you Thank you so much for joining us today. Please do rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends. It really helps other people find us and helps us to be able to make more podcasts. The book How To Be Sad is out now wherever you get your book delights. And I hope you are doing okay today.